0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of javascript jabber this week on
1: our panel we have amy knight
2: hey hey from nashville
1: dan shapir hi from tel aviv where the only good thing i can say about the weather is that it's great that we all have air conditioning aj
0: O'Neill. i'm charles maxwood from devchat.tv i uh, just want to encourage you to go check out MostValuable.Dev, and we have a special guest this week and that's ben vinegar hi, Ben. Everybody. do you want to
3: introduce yourself Yeah, sure. My name's Ben. I'm the VP of engineering at Sentry, which is a product that helps software developers sort of like find errors and performance problems with their production software. I'm also the author of a book, co-author of a book called Third Party JavaScript that was published with Manning Publications in 2013.
0: Oh, nice. Hey, folks, one of the things that I find that really makes a difference for people being happy in their job is working in a place that makes a difference. And there's a terrific company out there that's looking to hire full stack developer just like you, and that's Faithlife. Their average tenure is five years. I mean, five years—that's forever in developer years. Usually, I see people changing jobs every one to two years. People are sticking around because they're great. They have a great values-based culture, and they are hiring developers in the United States. They're looking for full-stack developers who can do C Sharp or JavaScript on the back end and React on the front end. Go check them out at devchat.tv/faithlife. That's devchat.tv/faithlife. Yeah, we're going to be talking about third-party JavaScript. Do you want to just kind of give us an idea? Because I had like three different things go through my head when I initially saw third-party JavaScript, you know, before we discussed what it was and how it kind of comes into play here. So when you're talking about third-party JavaScript, what are you talking about?
3: So when I wrote this book, I think I dedicated the first chapter to just like,
0: what is this?
3: The way that I describe it is, you know, if you if you think about two parties exchanging it in like a website exchange, right? Like I'm a user. I use my web browser and I access a website. And from that website, from that web server, you can think of them as the second party and they're serving you, you know, resources, scripts, HTML to render an experience. But then you also have third parties, right? You have sort of almost like hangers on. That can be a script tag that links out to another web server that returns content that does some other added behavior. Often that's probably the most, the version that everybody's familiar with that everybody's running is like Google Analytics. You can think of as third party JavaScript. Mm, Yep. If you're running a content website and you earn revenue via ads, right? Ad scripts are also another version to, you know, inject an ad, do some basic tracking. There's also, you can think of, you know, there's more elaborate versions of that. Part of the reason I wrote this book is I worked at a company called Disqus, which is still kicking around. That's D-I-S-Q-U-S. And they use
0: that for comments on devchat.tv?
3: Yeah. And they embed effectively like an entire application, right? Mm -hmm. So you put in a script tag and you get an embedded commenting application and that's all being served via third-party JavaScript. So, oh, and maybe the last version I would highlight is you can argue that browser plugins that use JavaScript are also a a version of third-party JavaScript, right? When you install a plugin it says, hey, you know, this script can access your web content, you're, you're kind of granting another party access to the exchange that, that's taking place. And it uses JavaScript to sort of, you know, inject experiences into your browsing session.
1: So I have two questions about this, kind of like make the definition even more precise. If I'm using JavaScript in my web application, let's say an open source library like uh, Lodash, but I'm actually hosting it on my own server rather than bringing it, I don't know, from Cloudflare or something like that, would that count as as second party, first party, third party? How would you count that?
3: So I don't usually include that in the definition for a couple of reasons. Because one, if you as the website or the web server publisher, for simplicity, I just call them publishers. If you're providing that content, it's coming from your servers. It's being served alongside your code. Maybe if you use Webpack, it's been bundled into your code. So it's all being, you know, it's all intermingled, right? And there's no access of, a third-party server. And I think that that is, I think that's the definition that most of us kind of align with. If you Google third-party JavaScript and you see, you know, articles on this topic from developer advocates from Google, you know, they're often concerned about third-party JavaScript as potentially impacting the performance of your website, which is a, a real concern. And you don't have that concern if you're, if you completely sort of serve that content yourself and you have full control. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. Although the lines can get blurry, I think, because for example, I work at Wix and and at Wix, we actually have our own, like quote-unquote, third-party domains. So, all a Wix site would have the domain that its owner purchased for it, but then we would serve JavaScript, let's say, to that site from our own domain. So, since we are, <laughs> that site is also hosted on Wix, would that count as third-party or not? You know, it, the, the definitions yeah. I think can get a little bit blurry here.
3: From some of the like, from some of the technology involved, serving it from another, you know, web server address definitely means that you have to deal with all of the concepts around third-party JavaScript. But I, in my mind, what you're mostly concerned about, or you know, when I think about third-party JavaScript, is there is literally another uh, another organization that's behind this. For example, if you are hosting your own code, you know, you have control over that. But if you're linking out to a snippet from Google Analytics or some other third-party JavaScript, you really have no idea what they could be injecting into your website. And the reverse is also true. When you are a third-party provider of JavaScript, you're injecting code into a sort of unknown environment. You actually don't know what's on the other side, right? So, and this goes for browser plugins too, in the sense that, you know, browser plugins can auto-update. You don't really know what content <laughs> you're injecting into your page and that can provide complications that you have to be mindful of. Does that make sense? Yes what does thing
0: off of Dan's example though is that if I own the Wix website and I or they are injecting their code into my website then I guess I could kind of see it as third party software to me even though they mostly control the environment and everything around it because it's
4: a Wix page. And so I think I think some of this just is down to your point of view as well. Yeah, in that case, I would consider the user's JavaScript to be third party because that's what has potential negative security risk for Wix. I mean, when I think third party, I think third party is what is the security risk? And in this case, the security risk is the user because Wix is not going to create a security problem for the user. The user might create a security problem for Wix.
1: That's an actually valid point. And yeah, we do need to deal with that. You know, I also want to paint I don't want to look at
3: third-party scripts as being a security vector, although there's truth to that. It's also even, it's, it's broader than that. Like the scripts that they inject might interfere with the way that you render the page. They might occupy the UI thread so that the rendering of, you know, the experience that you want as the sort of like publisher is impacted by those scripts in a way that you may have very little control over, right? Because they're just sort of injected to the page and you don't, you know, you may not be able to control the flow of how that application executes.
4: Well, to use the modern political parlance then, Who's the most vulnerable party? The other one is the third party.
1: Yeah, but like Ben said, vulnerability is only just a part of it. It's the mere fact that you're seeding control. And the fact that once the JavaScript is running in the browser session, it's got as much right to do stuff as like, quote unquote, first party JavaScript. It can do, you know, it can do anything that your JavaScript can do. And then they share the environment, in fact. And from the user's the the visitor's perspective or the user perspective, they, he cert, they, they certainly don't, they don't tell them apart. So yeah, the applications can be significant and not just security. Well, yeah. one
0: other thing, I've seen this in a couple of different ways with modern JavaScript, but back in the day, we'd have issues where you would load third-party systems that use jQuery, and then you also were using jQuery, and the third-party system that you were bringing in and used a different version of jQuery than the one that you loaded onto the website. And so you would run into collision issues with the APIs, even though, you know, theoretically, they should just both work. And I've seen this again nowadays with, you know, for example, you'll you'll have a website that for whatever reason, you know, loads in two different versions of a JavaScript framework or some underlying library and run into similar issues. And so, you know, third parties can, it can cause other issues, as Dan said, beyond just the security implications of, hey, it's got full access and it might make an AJAX call down to somebody else that well, in, I don't want it talking to.
4: In this case, by vulnerable in, in all senses of the word. So yeah. like if it changes the way your page looks, that makes you vulnerable. You know, like if it if it does anything that tampers with the integrity of your site, causing a poor user experience, causing okay. poor load times, you know, all of that, I would say, you know, even, even though often we use the words like integrity and vulnerability in the realm of security. I, I would say it's, I meant it in a broader sense. That's fair. You can imagine what were why you I say this. I was gonna say you can imagine when I
3: spent like a whole chapter trying to like be really clear about at least how the book interprets this. And I think Chuck, it's it's kind of what you said, which is yeah, just where you're seeding control. And maybe to bring it full circle, like if you're embedding a library and bundling it and serving it from your content, I wouldn't consider that third party JavaScript. But if you are linking directly to a CDN that you don't control, and who knows, for all you know, I mean, at least in the past, like they could just serve you whatever you wanted. Whereas today, you can have integrity checks to make sure that your expectation of the content is what you set out to load right as an an example of how even this technology has evolved
4: Um, and unless you know what you're doing cdns are going to make your site slow like unless you're actually paying for a cdn and you're using it consistently for all your resources and actually following the caching and regional guidelines you're just making your site slow and less reliable
1: it's interesting because the behavior of browsers has changed in a way that kind of impacts that it used to be that browser cache was shared between domains so if i had a website and and you had a website and we were both using let's say jquery and we were both using the same version from cloudflare then the fact that a person with their browser accessed your site would then benefit me if that same person accessed my site because uh, jQuery could be delivered from the local browser cache. This is no longer the case. And it was never really the case because it would always make a request. So because... Well, not necessarily. If, If the cache duration was specified appropriately, it might not.
4: Right. If it was specified appropriately, which generally they wouldn't, because doing that on a free service increases your support request rate because people don't know how caches work and they don't build their assets with like cash tag or whatever. They've got their web server set up incorrectly. All these things go wrong. And so then you get people doing all these support tickets to the CDN that are on free accounts that are just burning time because they're having trouble with caching and they don't know how to solve it.
1: Yeah, in any event, it's not really relevant anymore because for our listeners who may not know this, Safari, Firefox, and I'm not sure if Chrome is quite there yet or not, but if not, they're going to be there soon, or use what is known as double-keyed cache, which means that resources are not just cached by the URL, they're also cached by the main domain. So even if you do download the same site uh, from the same URL from two separate sites, they won't share the cache. So the resource would actually download twice. That sounds like such a stupid idea, Dan. Why ever would that be? It's actually for privacy concerns to avoid breadcrumbs or tracing. Like suppose that I wanted to know that you, it's interesting for, I want to track users. I could actually have resources like downloaded from common URLs across my, my gamut of websites. And then by checking the delivery times and the download sizes, I can actually figure out if a certain resource was delivered from the local cache or not. And then I can use that to kind of track you across you know, which websites you visited. So these are known as e-tag cookies. No, this has nothing to do with e-tags. Oh, this, okay. This has to do with the fact that suppose you're downloading resource, you're using a resource A.js from Cloudflare. And then I also, my website also down uses A.js from Cloudflare, the same version with the exact same URL. I can, use the, I can check with the browser to see how quickly it downloaded or even how many bytes were downloaded, figure out that it was served from the local cache, and say, oh, okay, now I know that they visited AJ's website. Oh,
4: okay. So that's even like that's even more subtle than E tag cookies. But E tag cookies, you get specific user tracking just the same as the way you get with normal cookies. That's what I was anyway, rabbit hole. Sorry. I think yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, we've rabbit holed and yeah.
3: I think that this is an incendiary topic. I think that you know, when I wrote this book, it is from the perspective of somebody developing products like this that have to also deal with the fact that, you know. Third-party scripts, I guess, have a, a pretty bad rap. iFrames had a really bad rap <laughs> for a long time. But the reality is that, you know, this is a, almost like a business relationship or these scripts are conferring value, right? Mentioned earlier, right? The podcast itself uses discuss comments. like It's getting something out of that. And so we're always going to have this. We're always going to have scripts that provide analytics and so forth. For example, even Sentry monitors for errors. Is, is We have a script that lets you do this. So the question is, if you are developing that content how do you be a good actor in this ecosystem? How do you develop an application that, you know, plays nicely with the host web page, doesn't take advantage, you know, or doesn't mess with the host page and, you know, make sure that doesn't interrupt rendering, make sure that doesn't lock the thread and so forth, right? So it's true, there's a lot of bad, I don't know if bad actors is the right word or third-party scripts that can result in a negative experience, but there's also like plenty of products out there that do a lot of good value. And as long as they play nicely, like set good cache rules, then you can have a good experience and everybody's okay.
2: One question I have, so we've talked about third party scripts being, you know, things that that are outside of my control. But what about, well, outside of my code base's control or outside my code base. But what about third party scripts in the sense of there are different things that like there are a lot of different marketing integrations that the developers may not be even aware of? Where I just as a marketer go to some website give it, you know, whatever information it needs, and suddenly there's, like, script tags on the page. Those qualify. (laughs) Or, 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 yeah, or even the case of, like, Google Tag Manager, you can have, like, your Google Tag Manager tag, and just by nature of having that, you can hook in all kinds of scripts. Yeah, absolutely. again, Again, like, outside of the control of, like, the developer. Okay.
3: Yeah, I think Segment does this, too, as tag managers. I think they all apply, right? Yep. Yeah. And so they're they're super common. Maybe in marketing, you know, marketing websites especially. Yeah, I think they all qualify. It's a it's a bigger industry and it's a bigger sort of like development space than sometimes we think about.
1: Maybe it might be worthwhile for some of our listeners to explain exactly what Tag Manager is.
2: Yeah, so I, I know, man, it's been a while, so I don't completely remember, but my understanding, Google Tag Manager is a way... You know what? I, I would have to look, actually. I don't completely remember, and I don't want to give a wrong answer, but...
3: I've used it very briefly. I think it's kind of, it literally manages like script tags that are injected into your marketing website so that, you know, non-developers can have some control or some flexibility over the configuration or on what pages things get injected and how. And so, you know, they don't have to go and call up the software team to go and and make some minor script adjustments here or there.
2: Yeah, you're you're right. It's literally anything.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're basically giving Google the ability to inject anything into your website. And presumably they do it based on what your marketing team decides to inject into your website. And hopefully they only injects the stuff that actually needs to be injected and <laughs> not other things.
2: The part I do yeah. remember about it probably is more like the programming side where you have something called like a data layer that sits, That that's how the code base talks to Tag Manager and passes like variables back and forth.
1: The bottom line, though, from my perspective is um, I see a lot of websites that download huge amounts of resources or content or stuff from Google, from Facebook, from others. I know that we were looking, for example, looking at uh, the Wix homepage, which is, by the way, also built on Wix. And it turns out that like half the the JavaScript on our own homepage, was stuff like from Google and Facebook and places like that because the marketing people just need it. It's, you know, the, we literally have no choice.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, because, I mean, I've seen stuff, it, some of the other things that you don't think about, you know, besides like Facebook Pixels and, you know, yeah, the Google Analytics and other things that you're putting in there are like email marketing systems, right? So all those email marketing forms, not all of them, but most of them are being loaded in via JavaScript. Advertising systems, a lot of those ads are being pulled in via JavaScript. Stripe. Um, Stripe's Stripe, a big yep, one. Yep, Yeah, right, like payment systems, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah, so I like these all exist because they do confer value, and yeah. even if we don't, I think we get maybe obsessed with a couple, a couple sort of like maybe bad actors. But you know, in some ways, like the the whole web industry is built on a lot of this, right? Ads especially, and so yeah, how do you consume it effectively? How do you develop it effectively, and so on? Like it's an underserved topic in my mind. This is kind of you know how did I even get to write a book in the first place? Is <laughs> because nobody was writing about this at the time, and yeah, that's kind of where this came from.
2: Well. I was going to ask a question about like, I don't know if we want to go in that direction, but I think Dan and I talked about this a while back my last job because I was looking at ways to like make the the page the initial page loads faster. How do you kind of like prevent the death by a thousand cuts as you're loading all this third-party JavaScript? Do you do uh, so, performance monitoring like with each push or, or each like merge to your master branch or develop branch or something like that?
0: You use Brave and see what breaks
3: <laughs> That's a testing is hard. <laughs> Now, I would say that, you know, when I worked to discuss from 2010 to 2014, so that was kind of, to me, like Disgust and web forms and Stripe were probably like at the upper bounds of how much they kind of mess or like ad- adjust the experience of the page to deliver a product. I, I think it's integration testing, not unlike what you would do elsewhere, right? Like load a web page, inject the script, evaluate, you know, track a whole bunch of metrics about what happens, monitor for regressions over time, right? And then of course you can also do your own metrics tracking. But I think a real challenge is and this is where it gets like into inception levels of complication, right? If you're a third-party script, you may want to use third-party scripts to to help understand the performance or, or the the reliability of what you're serving. Mm-hmm. But I think as a, as somebody who, as a publisher, your app, you know, you have a relationship with Stripe or Discuss or Google Analytics. You've willingly accepted that relationship, right? Because you installed it, but did you accept the the sort of like downstream relationship of another party being injected? That's usually, you know, web publishers usually don't go that far. And so you kind of have to do it yourself or proxy the data through your own servers and deal with it later. That makes sense.
1: Yes, it does. And it actually brings me around to what I wanted to ask, which is since you worked and currently work at companies that create software that is bundled as third-party JavaScript into others' web pages, how do you go about being a good web citizen, like making sure that your scripts live nicely and play nicely within other people's websites?
3: Super good question. So, and, and to clarify, like Sentry basically is a, you know, in JavaScript world, it's a JavaScript library that you can install via NPM or Yarn. So you can bundle it yourself and have complete sort of, you know, control over what's going on, or at least you can modify it. But we also do provide a CDN because that is easier for a lot of people. So in, in that regards, it's kind of being injected all the time. Well, one, for example, on our CDN, we pin versions. We don't actually allow a, a sort of like latest version from the CDN. So that's one example, right? The version that you've injected to your page is the one that you can predictably Rely on going forward. So I think that's one way versus, say, you know, if you were downloading a script with like a, lab, a library or an API and you sort of relied on the fact that a, that API existed and then all of a sudden you download a new version and now that API has changed, that's complicated, right? You could break, you could actually break the host application as a result of that, depending on how the code is laid out. So, you know, a couple thoughts, which is, you know, using Semver, being, being really good about being backwards compatible and so forth to trying to. Instrument the page if you're doing instrumentation, which Sentry does. So it actually like hooks into the global error handler to listen for errors that might be thrown from your running JavaScript code. So, as an example, this is like a micro example, but to hook into that, you know, we don't make any assumptions about if anything might also be hooked into that. So maybe there was already a global error handler by the host web page or another service. So we preserve the fact that that callback is there. You know, we save it. We make sure that our callback when we instrument it also sort of like defers back to the calling code. So it's a lot of sort of like clean, you know, making no assumptions about what you're dealing with, being very mindful when you touch anything in the global space to make sure that you don't interrupt any, anything that might have already been there. These are some examples. I don't know if this is answering the question correctly or, or gives you an idea.
1: Yes, it does. And by the way, when in your document that, you know, that we used to prepare to for for this podcast, you actually, I think, gave an interesting example of the the problem with like like with javascript in the browser javascript can literally like modify anything javascript can modify itself javascript can modify the browser apis etc i think you gave an example of uh, somebody modifying the array push or something like that how do you deal with that as a provider of third party javascript with the fact that you know any api or any javascript function built in functionality That you might try to use might have been modified in some way by the page itself.
3: Yeah, that used to be a far bigger concern in the past, by the way, just as an aside, because, you know, if I, let's say around 2010, you know, it was the Wild West. People did whatever they wanted with JavaScript. I don't know if anyone recalls the prototype library or Scriptaculous. Mm. Those were libraries that actually. The good old
1: days. Yeah. Yeah. Now everybody's just React.
3: Well, those libraries literally functioned by modifying all of the built-in prototypes of of the page. And so that was a very painful environment to work with. Like if if you were a third-party script loaded on a page with prototype.js, depending on the version of prototype.js, You could have different built-in methods, which is complicated. But today, you know, if you're building something with an embedded experience like Stripe, the answer is iframes. So because with an iframe, you actually get your own isolated, you know, clean JavaScript environment where you don't have to worry about the host page modifying built-ins or global methods, right? It also insulates you from... You have to consider even like the host page writing a query that grabs one of your DOM elements and manipulates it or adds a class, right? Those are actually possibilities if you're rendering rendering elements on the host page, so to avoid that, you build, you know you inject an iframe element and you do everything in a way that's sort of isolated. It's sure. usually the, the best way to do it. In the case of Sentry, Sentry's not rendering an iframe, and also iframes do have negative performance overheads. So for like an error monitoring library, you 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 don't want to introduce that overhead for a commenting form, That's or if you're Stripe, that's probably acceptable, right? I, I can't speak to Stripe, but it, it's okay. But in our case, so we don't do that. So we, we do have to kind of live in the, in the global global scope and, and deal with what's modified. And I think in that case, it's it's testing and integration and monitoring, right?
1: Yeah, I would add though that browsers do give iframes, especially third-party iframes, uh, lower priority. So in, con- in resource contention between the mainframe and an iframe, uh, (laughs) iframe loses Uh, and another interesting thing is that nowadays we also have the the lazy loading uh, ability for iframes built in into many browsers, Chrome, for example. So hopefully a third party that creates an iframe will put in the loading equals lazy attribute on the iframe, which means that if it's below the fold, it just wouldn't load until it's actually scrolled into view, which you know could be beneficial for performance as well.
3: It's also possible to actually even create an empty iframe that doesn't load any document. And you can use that as like a clean, and then you can inject scripts into it. So you can use that as a clean environment, but that's a little wacky. It is possible. But what anyway,
1: about custom elements in that context? Have you seen people using that for third, from, for third party scripts?
3: I mean, I think, yeah, that paves the way for custom elements and web components in the shadow DOM, right? These are, I'm less familiar with these. They wouldn't make sense for something like Sentry. But again, for, if you're building web forms, you know, again, I keep going back to Stripe because I think it's a great example. In my mind, they were built with that case in mind. <laughs> you know, the idea of being able to distribute templates that let you create an isolated shadow DOM and you can render in there without worrying about CSS interfering with it. And it's more performant than doing a whole iframe, which is effectively like embedding an entire window, right? I'm less familiar with those technologies because I think they kind of rounded into form, you know, 2015, 2016, um, and even then didn't get full browser support until more recent years. If I'm butchering the time range on this, I'm sorry, Alex Russell. (laughs) But, you know, I'm less familiar with them. But the answer is yes, I'm just less familiar with them. Have you ever wondered if you
0: could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Rain Gun is awesome awesome at this they they just added the performance monitoring which is really slick and it works like a breeze i I just i love it i love it it's like it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs it's anyway definitely go check it out it's going to save you a ton of time a ton of money a ton of sanity i mean let's face it grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at javascriptjabber.com slash
1: Raygun. So let's say I know for a fact that marketing people in my company are using Google Tag Manager or Facebook Pixel or some ad server and they are injecting a lot of uh, third party scripts into our website or web pages. What would your your recommendations be for me? What, what what should I like how should I adjust my development processes or whatever in order to best accommodate that?
3: That's a really good question. I operate on the idea that you'll always have to load them. There's just never going to be a world, right, where, where marketing or other parts of your company are just going to say, "Okay, we'll just not have these anymore," right? So you got to deal with them. I do think that good monitoring on your software is important. I have my own anecdotes from Sentry as an error monitoring product, where people who, you know, developers who use Sentry are notified about bad behaving plugins. Plugins are actually there a lot, and sort of scripts because they actually the errors get bubbled up into their monitoring, right? So I think the monitoring is important. It is possible. I mean, you should use HTTP only cookies, for example, to avoid and, and secure cookies to avoid the situation where a script could hypothetically read a cookie right from window.cookie. So, if viewers aren't familiar with that, it is possible to make sure the cookies are only transmitted via HTTP, which sort of makes sure that nobody can snoop on it. You know, do I think that a product like HubSpot would snoop on those cookies? I seriously doubt it, especially because you got to remember that also the JavaScript that is loaded is public and viewable, right? So you can you can kind of see what uh, products are doing in the space, something to keep in mind. But that's a good practice, for example, you know, putting script tags as low in the page as possible, provided that that makes sense, because there are some products that require injection at the very top. But if you do have power of that, you know, sort of like deprioritize them as much as possible. And then I th- think also don't modify, <laughs> don't mo- modify the window environment or the built-in environment, right? Don't write script that messes with prototypes. Be mindful that if you change the sort of landscape, the execution environment, you're you're, you're changing it for everybody, including almost like guests on your page, right? So I, again, I, I think that's way less common today than it was 10 years ago, but something to keep in mind.
1: One thing that I would actually add to your list is to use a tool like uh, webpagetest.org, uh, which can actually show you how many domains your webpage is connecting to and downloading stuff from. So this can like give you an overview of what your page is actually doing because like you said before, third party script might actually invite additional third party scripts and you may not even be aware of that. So like using a tool like WebPageTest really gives you a great overview of what's going on within your own web pages.
3: Well, yeah, web page test is great. I think that if you had that, you know, everything comes down to a business decision for, you know, hey, this tool that we're using, I understand it provides some value, but everybody should be aware about the overhead that it introduces to our page, right? And so that should be part of the conversation, right? You gain something, you lose something, and it's about the trade off that's acceptable. And I think web page tests can help illustrate that point to managers.
0: So if you're having weird issues on your page, because I, I think it's one thing when we're talking about, okay, you know, I'm writing a third-party JavaScript library that's meant to be loaded into the page somehow that you know provides certain behaviors, you know, whether it's invisible to the user and reporting back issues to the developer, or whether it's something like Discuss where it actually sticks stuff onto the page. But let's say that I'm starting to see weird issues on my page. I mean, I'm more likely honestly, to look at my own code first. But let's say that I go through my code, and I'm relatively certain that the problem isn't there. And that one of these third party JavaScript systems may be colliding or misbehaving, you know, relative to another one or just on its own. How do you start to figure that out? Do you just start yanking script tags out? Or is there a better way to do it?
3: That's a good question. I think that depending on the maturity of the company, right, like usually that's a rare outcome, but sometimes it happens. Yes. For example, I don't think this was JavaScript world, but, you know, Facebook triggered a a series of, okay, I'm going to watch my language here. I think that there was a series of large outages that were triggered in the mobile space because people were depending on a, on sort of like an API method in in a Facebook library that changed. Did anyone recollect this? This is from like maybe a month ago.
1: Yes, Something with, uh credentials or something that even if you weren't even logging in into anything, it would, it still cause the pages to like load blank or something.
3: Yeah. So whether it was mobile or JavaScript, it still sort of spoke to a dependence on a a third-party library that changed in a way that that was unpredictable and caused challenges. Right. And, and what we're talking about here, you know, you have a third-party script that could inject errors. It's causing a negative experience that can happen too. Right. And in some ways, in some, sometimes your only recourse is to file a ticket with that service and let them know that something's wrong or to remove it. Right. Or I suppose figure out some sort of like hot patch to fix it but But realistically, it's those other two. It is helpful, though, to sort of isolate it. You know, how do you debug that? Debugging third-party scripts is pretty hard. For example, you're debugging your own code. You've usually got, maybe you're using source maps. You can see the original source code and not, you know, a bunch of minified and and mangled garbage. So you can step through it and understand. But typically, you know, third-party scripts that come from ad servers or so forth, like try to take a look at Google Analytics.js or or some scripts on Gmail. They're really mangled, right? (laughs) So it's really actually hard to understand what's going on.
1: To be honest, I don't know why companies do that, Like, I really believe in, in providing source maps to everything. I mean, m- maybe they have like, they're thinking about security or something, but really security by obscurity is no security at all. If somebody is sufficiently motivated, you know, you can't step through mangled code. It's not that difficult at the end of the day. And consequently, I really think that you, you're doing everybody a favor if you're just providing proper source maps for, for your code, especially if your code is going going to be used by others and you know you've developed it not to interfere but but who knows what might happen
3: i would agree with that a challenging conversation <laughs> for many companies i'm sure right our library whether it's it's obviously if you npm install it but also from the CDN, we provide full source maps so you can step through it and i think that we even provide a lot of comments for people who are even st- hypothetically stepping through it to help explain how it works and how, how it instruments the page you know, so that's, I think that is a helpful thing that more people could do. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you to Dan's point, like you could reverse engineer it anyways. So why not give people a hand?
1: <laughs> yeah, and kind of related to that also is that if they inject, if their own script injects additional script tags that they put in the appropriate cores attribute. So again, if there's an error inside their script, then a tool like Sentry will be able to actually port where the error happened.
3: Yeah, I do think, you know, web components are good. I mean, for the future of this, I think that there's still a lot of opportunity, just as there was seven years ago, to have more tools or or facilities to kind of like help this work better. You know, the idea of a right now there's one global error handler and you all share it. The idea that maybe we can come up with a better API in the future so that to acknowledge the fact that there could be multiple parties kind of operating the same scope that could, you know, send errors more reliably to their own services, that'd be interesting. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's still opportunity for, you know, people who work on browser specifications, I think, to improve this. But that's not for me <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to decide, you know.
4: So I was going to ask about this earlier because I don't I don't think we mentioned it. Webpack seems to solve a lot of the leakage problems it doesn't solve the prototype problems it doesn't solve the you know you screwed up something on the page problem but it seems like especially webpack 5 now has like no overhead there's not a lot of webpack junk that goes into it as it was with the previous version so do you have any thoughts on webpack as a way to get that third-party stuff contained so that it's not all over the place
3: yeah that's a good point right like bundlers have evolved so much, right? When you, we brought jQuery, I think Chuck brought up up jQuery earlier, right? Yeah, that's that's when I thought of this. Yeah, yeah you would load a script and then jQuery and other libraries had this method called no conflict, if anyone recalls, where you could kind of like, you know, jQuery gets loaded into the global scope and then you immediately take it and put it into a local variable and then and sort of displace it from the global scope. And that way you could load multiple jQuery versions at the same time. But that also had problems because you couldn't load them asynchronously. You could have uh, race conditions where maybe if you didn't, you know, if you literally didn't block on loading jQuery, you could have intermingled versions despite your best efforts. And bundlers to day, kind of take all that away, right? And put everything into, you know, they scope all these local variables into if immediately invoked function expressions that they don't leak into the global scope. So yeah, I, I think the, the answer is use bundlers prevents a lot of global code leakage for sure.
1: Yeah. The only problem with that is that you end up downloading four versions of jQuery or more realistically these days, five versions of React and three versions of Moment.js. Uh, <laughs> but that's going to happen
4: so, anyway, right? I mean, like that's going to happen whether you use the bundler or not.
3: Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you're
1: thinking you're thinking
3: of a situation where you have like a a dependent library that also has a dependency and, and maybe they require different versions. So you bundled multiple versions. Is that what you're talking about, Dan?
1: Yes, you know, you can kind of overcome this to an extent by doing tree shaking or stuff like that, but I, I've still seen way too many cases of like the same library being downloaded multiple times by, by different in the context of different bundles. But yeah. I guess like AJ kind of said, I don't know if there's like a real like ultimate solution for this.
3: I think that if you're a third party script, you should, again, it all depends on what you're trying to do, right? In Sentry's case, we're trying to be as small as possible. So, and we want the overhead to be as minimal as possible. So we don't have any dependent libraries that get bundled inside of that if you NPM install Sentry via Webpack. I'm sure that we have taken taken snippets of code from, you know, license-appropriate projects and embedded it. And that's okay. I think that that's okay because you are trying to avoid this problem, right? I think it's better to take the relevant bit of code that helps you solve the the goal than be really rigid about, you know, code reuse and saying, I've got to npm install this whole library so that I can use this one method. And now you've introduced like quite a bit more bytes or kilobytes into, into the final payload that, you know, yes, tree shaking helps with, but... You can avoid that conversation entirely.
1: I also think in this context that if you can also create bundles for modern browsers, so maybe you'll have like two versions of a bundle, one for older browsers and one for modern browsers. Modern browsers provide built-in functionality that covers a lot of what we used to need, require libraries for. So maybe if you can assume modern JavaScript and you don't really need Lodash And maybe you don't need Axios because Fetch, the built-in Fetch is good enough and stuff like that. So for those like for you for everybody and certainly if you're developing third party javascript that gets reused all over the place I, I highly recommend like reevaluating the libraries that you're using and checking whether they're still actually needed in modern browser environments
4: so i actually used my own version of jquery called ajquery and i could post the entire library on twitter in a single tweet basically if you just take the .query selector and document.query selector all put those in a function that's dollar sign and double dollar sign boom it takes away that the primary headache is well oh, sorry it's document dot body dot query selector anyway just takes away the headache of having to type that out all the time and that's everything else everything else from jquery has now been implemented in the dom
3: so yeah so here we are it's 2020 and i think it's like copy paste is back <laughs> it's it's okay <laughs> that's my actual uh, attitude.
1: Has it has it ever left <laughs> I, uh... Yeah. What's it called? Stack overflow driven development. I think that's the, the term. That one think, gets to
4: be a little scary, but yes.
2: Yeah,
3: I think this is a, a fun discussion topic, but it's almost like we went too far with with the code reuse, right? And that was probably um, bad. Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth, right? Like that so kind of was the, the
4: apex of this. I have a library that I am ashamed of. It is one line long. It's called A to B. It gets 50 million downloads a month. It is included in the Apple TV SDK. <laughs> yeah. It like pains me that people use it because it says it said in the README, do not use this if you're running node. Like don't especially don't use this if you're in the browser. It was for a very specific use case of needing polyfillable or not polyfillable, but isomorphic. It's for a very specific isomorphic use case. And somehow it got picked up by something and included everywhere. It's ridiculous. Like these tiny little libraries that people don't need and shouldn't be using, especially like LeftPad and A to B because they're already in the environment that you need them for.
3: Yeah, Yes. Sentry itself was built partially on an open-source library called TraceKit, which still exists, which was sort of a... When I say Sentry, I mean like the the JavaScript library of Sentry that instruments errors. TraceKit was one of the early kind of like generic libraries you could do to, your, to do your own error monitoring. And again, to avoid this sort of package challenge, like we effectively forked it and we'd be... But we carved out the parts that were relevant to us because we had different APIs, right? We were more focused on sort of the sort of like stack trace normalization stuff that the TraceKit provided or even the on-air instrumentation. And we effectively monitored the project and we brought patches into our sort of fork and we contributed patches upstream as well too. And that's a model that still can work. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, And, you know, if you're talking about an early open source, like the model, right? Most people were, were, were doing sort of forks, you know, like a long time ago. And I don't know, I think that it's, I don't have a fully formed opinion here, but I think that we've been very dogmatic about code reuse as, as far as packages and libraries and that, and that there are other, you know, the reality is that there's a big gray middle on what's appropriate, you know?
4: So in the Go community, there's a proverb that is a little copying is better than a little dependency. And that's kind of my metric. If you could copy it, and it wouldn't be painful, if you could put it if you could put it in a tweet, it definitely should not be a library.
3: I like that. I agree with that sentiment. Yeah.
4: Yeah, that's a good one. But I'm still gonna publish that library because it's kind of <laughs> cool to say that I get 50 million downloads. Both are okay. <laughs> you know,
3: you're providing it out there. I think that's totally fine. It's it's up for Consumers of it, you know, to decide how they want to use it. So, yeah, it's okay.
0: All right. Well, it sounds like we're kind of winding down. Ben, if people want to connect with you online, where do they find you?
3: I'm on Twitter. I'm Bentlegen on Twitter. It's B E N T L E G E N. I'm also Ben Vinegar on GitHub. Happy to talk with anybody on these topics.
0: Awesome. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12 week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. Well, we're going to go ahead and do some picks. And I don't know if we prepped you on that, but you'll get to see everybody else do them. But we just shout out about stuff that we
4: like that's making our life better, stuff like that. So AJ, why don't you go first? All right. I'm going to pick AJ Query. I just released AJ Query V2.0 on Twitter. So anybody that's interested in AJ Query, boom, there's the tweet. Got it. Done. I'll also put that in a library for you in case you want to NPM install it. Okay, so... All right. So a couple of things I want to pick this week. One of them is there is a kind of modern replacement for SED, which is basically a regex find and replace tool. I think it stands for search and displace. The modern replacement is called SD and it runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And it is just an all around nice little ditty. And it uses JavaScript style regular expressions rather than Unix-style regular expressions, which can sometimes be nice. So I'm going to pick SD, and I've got a cheat sheet coming up that's in uh, pull request, pull review for it on webinstall.dev, so I'll link to that there if you want to get that and check it out. I'd still recommend using SED for your actual bash scripts, but when you need to do those like quick little ditties from the terminal, SD might be a slightly more ergonomic way to go about it. Also, I have to pick Dropbox Paper. So Dropbox Paper is compatible with Markdown. The Markdown that it exports is not the cleanest Markdown in the world. Like They could stand to run it through prettier so that spaces and between elements and stuff Uh, works out. But I am loving Dropbox paper for beyondcodebootcamp.com. I am writing all of the scripts for the course material and Dropbox paper. And it's such an easier way to organize it than Google Drive because it's got a left-hand sidebar where you can click on something in the sidebar and it changes. That One thing that I've complained to them about that I'm hoping they'll fix is that it takes like two or three seconds for the sidebar to finish loading. So if you wanna quickly switch through things like snap, 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 like you would in a Finder preview, PDFs for example, It's not quite that nice yet, but I hope it gets there. And like I said, it supports Markdown. They support LaTeX. It has media embedding. I mean, it's just like if you could imagine what would you want in 2020 a document editor to look and feel like that doesn't carry the baggage and the history of trying to be a Microsoft Word competitor, I think Dropbox Paper is pretty much there. So love it. And then I am also going to pick, there's a YouTube channel called Healthy Software Developer. It's just been interesting to listen to this guy. There was one episode in particular where he's interviewing... I think this one is where he's interviewing the guy that happenstantially invented the term mob programming. And some of the interviews that I've watched so far are really interesting. So I'm going to healthy software developer. I'm going to put that in here as well. Awesome.
0: Amy, what are your picks?
2: I'm going to go with something not to pick out AJ but I feel like he would probably like this. So it is everybody's probably or most people are probably familiar with the different like awesome lists on GitHub but this one is called Awesome Cold Showers. <laughs> so it's basically they have a list of different like hype technologies. I'm going to say instead of cold showers cuz I'm going to be nice just like the the pros and cons like the caveats that you might not be thinking of. So that's going to be my pick.
1: Awesome. Dan, what are your picks? Well, so I've got two picks around the fact that we recently bought a TV. We're kind of old school like that. We we like to watch TV occasionally, not just stuff on the computer screen.
2: Like me.
1: <laughs> well, actually, it's funny. The, the whole distinction between TV and computers is like going away because we're, we've we got a TV and we're using it to watch Netflix or, or YouTube or, or stuff like that. So it's just, you know, the fact that it's a big screen in the living room. Anyway, so being a techie, I did a lot of research around uh, which TV I actually wanted to buy. And the end result of that was the fact that for a little, quite a while, all I got in every ad in every website that I would go to was uh, were ads about TVs. And despite the fact that, you know, we already purchased a, a TV. So like for... Uh, Uh, literally almost a month, we we got ads about TVs. Uh, And it's really amusing because it really happens every time. Like when we go on, when we used to go on vacations before Corona, I would research uh, destinations and hotels and stuff like that. And then I would get like tons of ads for a long time about, you know, hotels after already booked all my hotels. So it's always amuses me how ads are like shown to me like too late. Uh, The other funny thing about the TV was what, which was actually quite annoying while it was going on was the fact that I connected our TV to the receiver so that we got like surround sound and then it stopped working like no audio. And I could literally not figure it out. And I would flip like, checked every manual and read stuff and watched videos and tried like every possible setting and it ultimately ended up with essentially resetting the receiver to factory settings and then just properly configuring it again and now it works and hopefully it will stay this way but the end result of that is that now instead of getting ads about TVs I'm getting ads about receivers. So so it's it's amusing how I'm always getting the wrong ads. Anyway, those would be my picks. Awesome. Yeah. I, I
3: can throw in a pick. Can I, can I get in here? Yeah, do it. So is anyone familiar with Cloudflare workers? It's sort of like...
2: Is,
3: is this like their version of Lambda? Yeah, but it's more interesting. It is like a serverless platform, but it's... You know, it's like, you can think of them as like cloud functions that run at the edge of Cloudflare's CDN. So it's not like a full, you don't get the same full compute environment that you would get on Lambda or Google Cloud Functions. But, you know, it's like, what if you could blend the performance of a CDN with the flexible capabilities of, of a serverless environment? So you can do things, if I wanted to connect this to, you know, a third party scripting conversation, you can do something where you can have a, a cloud CloudFlare worker that, you know, it takes a request. For a script, and then what it does is actually make three requests to sort of like three third-party scripts, caches their results, makes one big file, caches that, and then returns it to the CDN, so that you can have one one script request for like your website instead of three. That's an example of something you could do, not something I've done. But I have played around with it. I think it's kind of fun. It's a interesting new technology. Cloudflare Workers also has its own. Cloudflare provides like a its own key value store, so you can save values, like key value pairs, that are accessible at, at different worker, you know, to the different workers. And I've just been. It's not something we use at Centuries. It's or something I've been playing around with in my in my spare time. And I think it's kind of cool. I think people should check it out.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. This is a really interesting, especially in the context of stuff like Gemstack where you effectively can, instead of just looking at stuff that runs on the server and alternatively stuff that runs on the endpoint, you can now have something running like in bet- kind of in between. I-, I agree. It's really interesting technology.
0: Nice. I'm going to throw in some picks too. So one of them is a board game called Sight. It is on the pricier end of board games that I've bought. My wife and I have been playing it a bunch lately and we're really enjoying it. So I'm going to pick that. I'm also going to pick, and this is a new website that just to give a little bit of background is being put together by Adam Curry, who in the podcasting space is known as the, the Father. He's uh, credited with, kind of creating a lot of the concepts that make podcasting work. And anyway, he's he's put together this idea of Podcast 2.0 and they're putting together their own directory that's not controlled by a big tech company like Apple or Google. And it's supposed to be very developer friendly and things like that. It's at podcastindex.org and I'm, I'm super excited to see this coming. And then the last one that I'm going to pick is a documentary. It's called The Creepy Line. And it's really interesting because it just talks about how much the big tech companies actually know about you and what they're doing with that information. And it is rather creepy. But it's interesting just to see what's out there and what they're doing with it. And a lot of times people, they try and conflate this with politics, this, that, or the other. But what I find disturbing about it is just the amount of information they have, the way that they're able to manipulate people as far as their behavior and things like that. And yeah, essentially just, you know, how much control they can exert on people. And, and I don't think it's everybody. And I don't think it's all the time. But you know, there's a lot more going on there than we think. And anyway, I think it's worth a watch. And then you can think about, yeah, how, how you fit into that and what you need to know about what these companies are doing with your data. So uh, I'm going to Pick that too. And yeah, I think that's it. Ben, thank you for coming. This was a lot of fun.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. And until next time, folks, max out. Bye. Bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.